If you've got a Bible, please grab it and turn over to the book of Haggai. Uh, If you didn't bring one, you can grab one out of the holder beneath your chair or the chair right next to you. It's going to be important that you have a copy of God's Word for this morning. And uh, if you're waiting for me to say I'm just joking, I'm not joking. We are going to that little hidden gem called Haggai. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles under your chairs, it's going to be on page 791. 791, just to help you. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament. We're going to focus on this book for our time here this morning. And just to tell you a little bit about this book by way of introduction, it's only two chapters, just 38 total verses. And you might be thinking, okay, why are we going to spend our time here this morning in the book of Haggai? Well, let me just give you my short little defense of why I want to take us here today. First of all, There's a certain joy in discovery, isn't there? I'm going to assume that most of you are not familiar with the details of this book, let alone the theological truths that come to bear on your life. And so I think there's even a joy in discovery and also a need in our sanctification. But second of all, the Scripture says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped adequate for every good work. This all Scripture applies to the Old Testament as well. Now, it is true that we are New Covenant people. We are New Testament people, to use the synonymous phrase. However, just because we're not under the Old Covenant does not mean there is not value in the Old Testament. So, I do think it's right that we spend the majority of our time studying those New Testament books uh, because they more directly apply to us, yet let's not forget at times the Old Testament as it does reveal God and our relationship with God, how God works with man, etc. And then third and finally, I want to take us to this little letter in the Old Testament because Haggai is going to contain a powerful and impactful truth, even for our lives today, as we'll see as we get in. So, turn over to Haggai, again, third to last book, and let me just set the context for us. I want to take you back to the year 538 B.C., and as much as you can, try to visualize, let's say, being among Daniel and his three friends. They were exiled out in the year 605 B.C. as young men, 15-year-old men. They were taken from their home. They were taken from their land. They were taken from their families. I mean, can you imagine being 15 years old and taken away from all that you ever knew? And not just for a few months, not just for a few years, but for 70 years. They were taken 800 miles to the northeast to a place called Babylon. And there they would spend their entire lives. And yet, as the book of Daniel records, Daniel never compromised even once. Well, it's at the end of this 70-year time period that the decree was given for them to return. And so the first wave of Jewish people to return from Babylon back into the land, back into the land that had been taken over by others, and back into the land where their temple had been desecrated, that first wave was 50,000 people. They returned in the year 538 B.C., So the exile was in 605, the return in 538, and they did the one thing that God called them to do, which was first priority, you need to rebuild the temple. Rebuild the center of your existence where I will dwell, where my glory will be to represent me being at the center of your lives. This is what God told them to do. And for a short time, it was going well until they met opposition. We pick up in Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So what's going to come from this book is a message from Haggai the prophet to the two leaders of Israel, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the political leader and the religious leader. Now, as we already compare this, this passage aligns with another account in our Old Testament, which is Ezra chapter 4. And in Ezra 4, we find the reason why their work of rebuilding the temple had been stopped. You see, when they got back in the land, there were other peoples that had moved in. And when they started building the temple, these other people said, hey, we'll help you. We believe in a God as well, so let's just join our forces together. Why not just mix our religions and we'll build this temple? But Israel said, no, we don't want to mix with you. We'll do it on our own. And quickly, these people turned on them. And so, shortly after beginning, again, 538 B.C., they stopped. They stopped rebuilding the temple as God had told them to do. So the first reason that they stopped is they met opposition. Wait, Matt, you mean to tell me that at times we're going to face opposition in completing the task that God has given us to do? We're going to face opposition in our lives, living them out in this world? You got it. There are going to be times where we are going to face opposition. And just as they did, they succumbed to it. And so they sat there and left the temple unbuilt. The foundations had been laid, but grass began to grow over the stones. The wood began to rot. The stones began to crumble. The work that they set out to do, the one thing God called them to do, was left undone. And now in verse 2, we see the second reason that they stopped. Verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The second reason they stopped doing the work of the Lord was procrastination. I think it was Mark Twain who said, Never put off till tomorrow what may be done the day after tomorrow just as well. He said so, so humorously to talk about procrastination, but we know that seldom does virtue ever come from procrastination, especially in our spiritual lives. Are you with me? Procrastination is the devil's tool to lull you into laziness and apathy. I just wonder how many people even today say, oh, I, I want to read the whole Bible, but maybe I'll do it next year. I want to start praying more, but I've just been so busy with work and family and everything else, I just haven't had time. I know I should probably reach out to that person, but ah, I'll do it tomorrow. Whatever it may be in your life, learn from the example here in this text that procrastination is not pleasing to the Lord. Furthermore, there seems to be a presumption made by the people of Israel that they knew the will of the Lord. Again, in verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Didn't God tell you the time had come? Didn't God supernaturally allow you to be sent back from captivity back to the land and he told you to build the temple and now, stepping out in presumption, you're saying, this is my will? Friends, underneath this, there's an assumption that the will of God in our lives will never be faced with difficulty. And yet, that is just not true. Look at the New Testament examples, right? Ten of the eleven disciples who remained after Jesus ascended, were killed for their faith. Church history records uh, 2,000 years of people suffering for the gospel. And yet, what a good work that often comes from that. Even today, many endure hardship as they follow the will of God in their lives. And so it is with us. 
Just because we face challenges, just because there's opposition, does not mean that it's not the will of God for you to continue doing that thing which he is calling you to do. Spiritual apathy then and priority misalignment had created a shift in these people's relationship with God such that, notice verse 2, these people is what God calls them. These people, not my people, but these people say the time has not yet come. A relational shift had happened because of their lack of spirituality. We continue in verse 3, and here is the, the prophecy from the prophet Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Here then is the indictment of the entire book. The rest of the book actually turns a corner to be quite encouraging. But here in verse 4, God is essentially saying, you mean to tell me that you have time to build your house and not only to build it, but to panel it. You have time to decorate your house while my house remains unfinished? While my house remains desolate? In verse 4 here, the idea of these paneled houses were houses that had ceilings on them. Houses that had walls, they had interior walls, and then they had some sort of wainscot out of cedar on top of those walls. The idea is they had time to beautify their own homes, and they spent their resources on that instead of God's house. Now, let's not be confused. Yes, it was important to finish God's physical house, the temple of God, but underneath this is an indictment of their spirituality or lack thereof. The Israel people, the people of Israel, had misplaced their priorities. They had misplaced their priorities on their own comfort, on their own leisure, on their own satisfaction, the aesthetics of their own livelihood, at the neglect of their spiritual life with God. And the Lord is greatly concerned then that not just them, but we as well, would not lose focus of the main thing in our lives, which is to be the Lord. He was to be at the center of their existence, and He is to be at the center of our existence as well. And so, this second thing that had kept them from doing what God said was procrastination and presumption. But thirdly, I think it was just straight-up distraction, right? They were distracted by the things of their own lives. Again, how easy is it to forget what God has done in our lives? God had taken this nation, this people of Israel. He had brought them back, not just a few miles, but 800 miles from the nation of Babylon back to Israel. He had allowed them to be established again in their country, on their land. And within a few months, they had already forgotten the providence of God in their lives. And so, they let it sit. Now, any guesses as to how long they were in disobedience for? They began the work of rebuilding the temple for a few months. The squatters in their land turned against them, their neighbors. So they stopped, and between 16 and 18 years now had passed. 16 to 18 years, the temple sat desolate. The temple sat unfinished. 16 to 18 years, they were rebellious against the will of God. As a consequence, look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you don't have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God is essentially saying, you want to live for material things? You want to live for the, the comforts of your own life? Well, then I myself will be against you. 
Their crop was not bountiful, their plates were not full, their bodies were not warm, and their finances were not right. Do we also today forget that it is God who owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills? God owns the air we breathe. He owns the land we walk on. He owns all the buildings. He owns everything. He's the giver of strength and of health and of resources of all things. And so, oh, the audacity for them and perhaps for us to neglect God, the giver of life, and yet at the same time to expect prosperity. He says, not so fast. Verse 7 continues, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth was, has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the lands and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God was holistically going to withheld, withhold prosperity from them, economically, agriculturally, and financially, because of their lack of commitment to him. Notice also that God is claiming, he's claiming this disaster that's been upon them. Verse 9, I blew it away. Verse 11, I called for the drought. Now, this is the indictment. This is the judgment of this first prophecy. But I I want us to begin to think and to consider what God does not do here. What God does not do in the following passages is that he does not consume them with fire. (laughs) That's good news. He does not bring on another nation to destroy them. He does not bring on another nation to exile them out once again. In fact, he doesn't bring any consequence beyond this spiritual spanking, and he only exhorts them to get to work. He gives them mercy and patience, having just exiled them out and chastised them for 70 years. They're back in, they're disobedient, and what does God do? He's merciful once again. He says, repent and start building. Why? Well, he tells us that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Thus, at the heart of God, the heart of God, we need to understand here this morning that God is on their team. God is for them. He wants them to succeed, and I want to encourage us, he's on your team as well. He is behind you. He is not a cosmic killjoy looking to deal out punishment and judgment every time you stumble. He's simply a loving father who actually wants to help you grow and walk in obedience. At the heart of God, we see that what he was after in verse 8 is that he might be glorified. He wants to take pleasure in what we do for him. But to do so, we have to walk in obedience. Isn't it right then that we ought to strive in our lives to say, Lord, I want to do everything to be pleasing to you and to glorify you. Right out of verse 8, to be pleasing to him and to glorify him. And yet, like the Israelites who returned, it's easy to slip into pleasing ourselves and glorifying ourselves. I wonder, in your life, have you observed the patience of God, though? 
Have you observed God being so patient in your sanctification process? Maybe you've walked with Christ for a while now, and at some point in your life, you get to a point, and you, some sin issue in your life is revealed, and you realize, Lord, I've been doing this for years. I've actually been doing this for a large portion of my life, and I'm just now realizing it. That's a humbling thing. If you're walking in Christ, you've probably experienced that. What this does is it points us back to the patience and the mercy of God. He's so gracious, isn't he, to not bubble up all of our sin at once, but to just let one thing bubble up at a time, and then we deal with it. And then another thing, and that's called progressive sanctification. Well, so it is in our lives, and so it is here. The Lord doesn't spend a lot of time punishing them, judging them, making them feel bad about their sin. He's with them. He says, come on, let's go. And so, verse 12, they began reconstruction. God tells them to to repent, and they do. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And as the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, And the people feared God. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of their host, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So what a beautiful thing. We get a picture story of regular people just like us and the same God, who's our God today, being convicted of their sin, confronted on their sin, turning from their sin and obeying. Now, just to continue to make the case I'm making that God is for you and not against you, did you notice that he is intimately involved in this? Not only is God giving them mercy and patience when he should have or perhaps at least could have condemned them, But God actually enters into the act. It says God's spirit stirred up the political leader, the religious leader, and not only that, but who? All the people. All the people God himself stirred up in order to obey. This, again, shows God's commitment to their growth spiritually, to their obedience and walking in faith with him. And in the same way, I think it is true of us, in the New Testament era, we're indwelt with the Spirit, and the Spirit there is there to lead us, to, to bring us in to further and further obedience. Now, again, what's amazing about this instance is it doesn't take a big banter, right? When you study the prophet Habakkuk, there's a little bit of back and forth between the Lord and Habakkuk. The Lord condemns them, he indicts them, and they respond. They immediately just start building. Bear in mind, this has been 16 years 16 years of a sinful pattern, and they repent on the spot. Again, have you ever observed someone do this and go cold turkey? The closest thing in my own life is I had a family member who was in a habit of chewing tobacco all the time, every day, multiple cans. And uh, another family member said, I'll bet you you couldn't quit if you wanted to. It had been years, at least a decade, of every day chewing tobacco. And this other family member said, oh yeah? He grabbed the can, threw it out the window of the vehicle, and kept driving. He said, watch me. 13 years. 13 years not touching it again. Just in a cold turkey instance. Well, in the same way, here's the the encouraging truth for us today. Is that just because you've been trapped in a sin, just because there's a pattern of disobedience and sinfulness laid down in your life, doesn't mean that today can't be the day 
when you cut it off and you say no more. Make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts, says Romans 13, and know that God is with you and for you in this process. So, They repent, they obey, they walk now in faithfulness to God's call in their life, which is to rebuild the temple. And the Lord himself was with them in this process. Now, as we turn to chapter 2, that completes the first prophecy. The first of Haggai's prophecies was in chapter 1, and then you have their response. Chapter 2 now, fast forwards about seven weeks. We're in the year 520 B.C. The first prophecy is given in September probably September 1st, and now at the start of chapter 2, we're forward seven weeks, October 20th of 520 B.C., and this time, in this second word from the Lord, they receive encouragement. The first one was rebuke. The second prophecy is actually that of encouragement. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? When we compare this record with the record of Ezra chapter 4, we find that it wasn't just as nothing in their eyes. But when they completed this second temple, there was a generation of older folks who had been there for the first temple. And when they saw this puny, little, pathetic second temple, they howled and wept out loud. You see, the first temple of Solomon was spectacular. It was ornamented. It was filled with gold. They've estimated $20 million for this little temple. It's not a very big building altogether. There was gold everywhere, hand-carved ornaments It was spectacular. And now this second temple causes that older generation to weep and howl out of sadness and mourning. Here stood this piddly little thing. This is supposed to be God's house. This is supposed to be where God dwells and where we worship him. Perhaps it was because Israel didn't have the resources they once had. Perhaps their craftsmen had not refined their craft in the 70 years of exile. But in any case, this temple was a mere shadow of the former one. So what happens is the older folks are in misery and remembering the past. The younger generation, they're probably overjoyed just because there's a temple for the first time in their lives. And such is kind of a funny snapshot of how church goes today, isn't it? Oftentimes, as changes happen, the older generation says, oh, remember the old days. Remember the glory of what it used to be like. And the newer, gen- newer generation is all about the here and now. This is the greatest thing going. Well, I, I want to remind us of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul's perspective on the past was this. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think what we see from Haggai and from the Apostle Paul is that holding on to the past can be crippling. It can be crippling if you view those as the mountaintops that you'll never reach again. It can be crippling if you hold on to the negative elements of the past and it paralyzes you. It can also be crippling to others in your life. It it robs some of the joy of what God is doing here and now. Think about the younger generation. They had just built the temple, the thing that God called them to do, and the older generation is crying and mourning and complaining. 
That's not going to be encouraging for the younger generation. And so I think there is a, a little bit of a picture lesson there for us to not necessarily dwell on the past and the things God has done formerly, but to look forward to what God is doing now and moving forward. Returning then to Haggai chapter 2, the narrative continues in verse 4, God speaking. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. You see why I say encouragement here? There was a, a hurting generation. There was turmoil within the two, the older generation and the younger. And God says, fear not. I want to encourage you. Don't be upset. Why? One thing in the text. He says, because I am with you. You see, I, I'm still not convinced that they understood the point. It was never really about the building, right? If God ever came back to that temple, it was for a, very, for a very short time, and it's more likely that he never did fill that temple again with the Shekinah glory. But the point was this, is that God was going to be with them. They don't need a big ornamented building. They had God and his spirit in their life. The whole point of this prophetic note then from Haggai is to produce spiritual reform. Yes, to begin rebuilding the temple, but to actually consider their hearts and to turn to the Lord as the chief point of their life. Their lack of action in building the temple represented their lack of repentance in the heart. But there's, I mean, a building is a building and a, is a building. There's only one God, though, and he must be recognized as so. So, verse 6, he continues on, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, and here's even more encouragement, notice, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that all the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So even though you're upset because this isn't what it should be, don't worry. There's a day coming where it will be. I'm going to be with you in the meantime, but verse 8 continues. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Essentially what he's doing is he's saying, guys, don't worry. I'm going to win. <laughs> it's going to be okay. The future generation will be taken care of. My glory will be seen magnificently so. In fact, this temple, the center of worship in this place, in the future is going to be even greater than the one in the past. So right then and there, this was Ezra's temple. In comparing Solomon's temple to the future temple, God is saying in the future it will be even greater. I believe personally that this is a reference to the second coming of Christ when Christ will seat himself in the temple, when Christ will dwell on earth with man and all will be well again. Ezekiel 40 to 48 records the, specif the specifications of this millennial temple that will come. And for a Jew, that would have been extremely encouraging. Again, the temple was the center of their worship, right? And so God is telling them, don't worry, I'm going to shake the nations. There's going to be a time of turmoil on the earth, and all the nations will come to this place with their gold and silver and bringing their offerings. Here's the point. God wanted to encourage them with hope, and I believe he wants to encourage us with hope as well. Whenever we study eschatology, whenever we study those future things that are to come, 
We can get caught up in the weeds, and there's some value to that. But ultimately, the point of studying eschatology is that it would impact our lives now, that we would live in the proper manner before God now, always ready for his coming. And second of all, that we would have hope and faith and perseverance. And I think in the same way, God is giving them that hope and faith and perseverance that he's got this. I read this in a commentary. I thought it was helpful. We can be like those who take a dime and hold it up to the sun and blot out the sun. And that dime can often be our present circumstances. It's easy to be Debbie Downers about our lives and to forget that there is a sovereign God working all things together for good for those who love God. So let us take courage and be encouraged that God is in control even today. He is working all things out and we can rest in him. Now, Haggai's third prophecy begins in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So this is the third prophecy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck, you with all, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, consider since this day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine. The fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So, a few things going on here. First, we see the principle that bad company corrupts good morals. If you get a little bit of yeast in the dough, it spreads to the whole thing. And so it is with sin. Sin is contagious and it spreads, but the opposite is not true. In other words, you can't just catch holiness. Holiness, that is commitment to God in the life of fearing God, is a personal decision that requires personal repentance. This message here in this third prophecy is that God wants to bless them, and he's going to bless them, but they must reform. They must repent from within. He was going to bless their production once again. He was going to provide abundantly. But again, they needed to personally repent by cutting out that which was unholy. I think the New Testament picks up the same idea, even on a corporate level, in Matthew 18. If you remember in Matthew 18, first a parable of that lost sheep is told. The Lord has 99, one goes away, and he says, will not the shepherd leave the 99 to go get the one? And the picture there is that he'll put that one on his shoulder, and he'll bring him back to the fold. And then he goes right in, in Matthew 18, verse 15, to what we call church restoration, where if in the church anyone is sinning, Go to that brother individually and tell him of his sin. And if he accepts that and repents, you've won your brother. If he will not accept that, then take just two or three. The idea is keeping that circle small, right? Take two or three 
And then if he hears two or three of you, great, you've won your brother. But if not, then tell it to the whole church, that the whole church might go to that one brother or one sister, that they might be confronted of their sin and turn from it. And if they still won't hear the whole church, then treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile, which means they're an unbeliever. And thus you began to witness to them and preach the gospel to them. The point is this, the Lord Jesus cares about the holiness of his church. We also must individually and corporately take care of sin in our lives. Why? For the glory of God and his reputation in the world. Well, it's the same principle here. Just like God desires that in the church, so too in the past he desired that in Israel. Each of them had to personally deal with their own sin, even as we do today. So I think the point, friends, of verses 10 to 19 is that we've got to deal radically with sin in our lives. Radical amputation. Even as the Lord Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand, cut it off. It's better to lose one of your members than for your whole soul to go into an eternity of hell. Well, he closes then with his final prophecy. The fourth prophecy of this short letter of Haggai is about the signet ring. Look at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them, by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, beginning in these early verses of this prophecy, we have to ask again, when did this happen? Or perhaps we should ask, did it happen? It is true that the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered by a nation called Greece under Alexander the Great. Daniel prophesied Alexander the Great long before Alexander the Great conquered. And he even prophesied that once Greece would take over, actually that empire would be split into four different sub-empires. Well then, again, Daniel prophesied that Greece would fall to who? To Rome. And as we know, Rome conquered the, the world with their iron swords, their iron weapons. Rome conquered. However, I don't believe that either of those are in view here because all of the nations did not fall. All of the kingdoms did not crumble. All of their chariots and their riders have not collapsed. It's my interpretation then, I think, again, humbly, best fitting to this text, that this is still a future event, that these verses, 20 to 22, are speaking of a future tribulation where God will shake all the nations and the whole world will tremble before him. It would seem that this is referring to the time of tribulation. And as we know from other texts within our Bibles, at that time of tribulation near the end, all the nations will gather to oppose the return of Christ. All the nations will gather, specifically in the Jezreel Valley in Israel. They will gather to oppose the return of Christ just off that little town called Megiddo. In Hebrew, they refer to a mountain as Har, and so Har Megiddo becomes our English word Armageddon. And this battle of Armageddon will take place, and yet it will end swiftly. The Lord Jesus will return, and with the snap of his fingers, it will be over. So, the Lord is, is speaking of this future day, this far-off future day, and notice what he says in 23. He says, on that day, on that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring. 
We know that this never came to pass in Zerubbabel's life. In fact, Zerubbabel's life would not extend more than just a few decades after this point. But what is interesting about the person of Zerubbabel is his lineage. Just two generations back, his grandfather was a man by the name of Jeconiah. And if you know your Bible, you know that Jeconiah was the last king in the line of kings in Israel until God placed a curse. He said, no more. Well, what's interesting about this is that God seems to be renewing that promise that he's going to actually restore the throne of David. He's going to restore the line of kings in Israel with a future descendant of Zerubbabel. And this all comes back to 2 Samuel 7 with the promise to David. Well, Zerubbabel's name occurs again in Matthew chapter 1. As our New Testament begins, it lists the lineage of a man. A man born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth. A man from the line of David, from the kingly line of David, and a descendant of Zerubbabel, the man and God, Jesus Christ. Now look at specifically what he says about this one, this one who will come in the likeness of Zerubbabel from his line. He says, I will make you like a signet ring. What you need to know about a signet ring is that it was only for the king. He would wear that ring as a, as a marker of authority and power. He would use it to sign official documents. And then it would become, therefore, it would become his most prized possession. It represented the fact that he was king. And you don't lend out your signet ring. It was not to be transferred or given away. Well, what's interesting is that the Lord says, I will make you like a signet ring. This is, without doubt, unequivocally, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, and perhaps both his first coming and his second coming. It is a promise that the Lord Jesus will come. Therefore, O Israel, take hope. God is going to win, and his king will sit on the throne again. Here in 520 BC, the Lord cast the vision so far, so far out, and yet it was to give them hope. How much more should it give us hope? Friends gathered here today, the encouragement at the end of this prophecy is that God has appointed a man, fully God, fully man, the Lord Jesus, to sit on the throne. He is in control now, but he will come again and make all things right. Jesus is coming, and he is coming quickly. So, we close in the same place where we began. These people had misplaced their priorities. They had focused more on their own lives, their own material things, their own comforts and leisures, rather than on worshiping God. In reality, it wasn't really about that building called the temple. It was about their worship and their need to take a long, hard look at their priorities, their spiritual priorities. God is calling them to repent and to align their spiritual priorities before Him so that He might delight in them and that they might worship Him. And so I just wonder, as we close here today, it's worth considering have we misplaced our priorities? Have we focused on, quote-unquote, our own paneled houses rather than on God's things, on the things of God and what God has called us to do? Have we placed our own personal interests and hobbies and our comforts, even our work, higher than our worship of God as the central point of our lives? What we're looking at is the sin of spiritual neglect and spiritual apathy, in fact, this will eventually culminate in a time that's so infuriating to the Lord that he will shake all the nations. He will come to judge those who have neglected him. And so the message of this prophet is that we would consider, that we would consider our spiritual priorities and that we would reform in order to place him as number one. 
May we begin the work of placing God at the center of our existence as we strive in our lives to be pleasing to Him and to glorify Him.